All right, why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 2, please. Matthew chapter 2. There is a time difference between chapter 1 and 2, about two years, as we'll see, as the wise men will be arriving, seeing the king that they came seeking for and his mother in Bethlehem. Remember that chapter 1 is really the legitimate king of the Jews. Chapter 2 is the illegitimate king of the Jews. Jesus and Herod are in sharp contrast here. Um, If you remember back in the Old Testament, um, Saul was the choice of the people. It was never the choice of God. And so he gave them the king that they wanted. And he warned them about the type of king he would be through Samuel. But they still insisted on it. And time unfolded the reality of that he wasn't God's choice. God's choice was always David. Um, The king of the Jews is no one else but Jesus Christ, as we'll see. This is the one who will bring in peace, who will come to set up the kingdom, the one who will reign in righteousness. Until then, um, we will have some periods of justice and, and um, equity uh, from time to time in nations and in different parts of the world when you have godly men, righteous people who believe in morality and objective truth and and the fairness of law, and the punishment of evil. But it's only for short times. Sooner or later, governments, uh, nations become corrupted, be it by power, be it by wealth, be it by just becoming lazy, indifferent. Uh, We can mark this through history, through different nations, and certainly our nation is... No exception. So in chapter 2 here, verse 1 through 12 is the coming of the wise men. Verse 1 through 3 have the arrival of them. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And again, Herod here is totally oblivious to it, and so are the religious rulers that we'll see, but yet... God went outside of the nation of Israel to choose these men. Remember that Jesus said that that God had to go outside uh, to the Gentiles to find faith. The widow of Seraphath up in Syria, Jesus would point out. And often it was the Jew that didn't have the faith, didn't trust in what God had promised. And here again, God goes outside of the nation of Israel to bring these Gentile who believed in a greater belief than those of his own nation. And this seemed to be a pattern with Israel all the time. And so here, um, Herod is king, and again, it was given to him 40 B.C. by Rome as he continued to seek it out. But remember, he was not a legitimate king. He... uh, his um, genealogies was marred. 
And you know what the Bible speaks about marred genealogy, even as Ezra and Nehemiah uh, refused to use people who had marred genealogies. Uh, aren't you glad God saved only those that have pure genealogies can be saved? <laughs> and that's why as we looked at the genealogy of chapter 1 where you have there um, uh, some very sordid women and um, I, 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 I mentioned that they were all for Gentiles and somebody dropped me a note on um, one of the services last week and they're completely correct I, I just said for Gentile but three are Gentile the other one of course is not and it was just an error in my speaking but God purposely puts that there to demonstrate that he's breaking down the old um, standards of the Old Testament of male-female because even though the um, Hebrews and the nation of Israel had the highest standard for women, it was still low. And so for a woman to be listed in the genealogy, as we said, was something very uh, exceptional. And yet when it comes to the standard of this genealogy, I mean, you have Tamar and Rahab and, you know, Bathsheba, and uh, you have Ruth. Um, and yet God is sufficient to save any person who repents. And yet here again, the demonstration of faith was outside of Israel. Um, and as they come to, uh, to Herod here, um, they, um, they're coming seeking out the king of the Jews, um, but they come first to the king who is on the throne. Uh, men take positions of power and authority in, in many different ways, uh, sometimes uh, honorably, sometimes dishonorably. Uh, many times they, um, after a nation corrupts itself, they buy their positions and there's always, you know, a corruption within, um, within government. We certainly see it in our own nation more clearly now than ever before. But um, this is the nature of man. This is what happens, um, and you don't have to go very far. You can look to your own life. You can look to your own family. You can look to your friends. You can look to things like that, how sometimes some will take advantage of others, and in a fallen state, this is the things that we see. The world that we see is not what God intended. It's um, the result of man's rebellion against God that started back with Adam. And once he blew it, then sin passed to all men, and through sin, death passed to every person. And... Um, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17:9 says. And uh, unless we are born again, unless we turn to the true king, then we will continue to manifest that fallen nature, uh, living for ourselves and not really for Jesus Christ. And so um, as they travel from, from the east here, they're coming from the east traveling west, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So once again, they are demonstrating absolute biblical faith. Now, people often tell you, and I hear when they talk to me, they say, well, I have faith. But what is it that you're, what you call faith? And what is it that you're believing that verifies your faith? If what you believe is not found in the Bible, then it's not biblical faith. For it to be biblical faith and legitimate faith, it must be that you believe what God has revealed about himself or whatever it is that he's talking about. And you put your trust in him, 
then that's biblical faith. If you put your faith or you call what you believe faith that is contrary to Scripture or in addition to Scripture, then it's not biblical faith at all. It's just your opinion and foolishness, really, to try to be passed off as God's objective revelation. And so they believed in a way that God had revealed. And we said this morning that, remember, Daniel was in Shushan, the palace in Babylon. Um, he, God had a, elevated him to a very uh, key position above all the wise men and soothsayers of Babylon. And, um, and he went into the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. And you had Jonah. You had many prophets. And again, as... Israel was scattered into captivity in Syria and Babylon. The Jews lived in those areas and the scriptures were proclaimed, the Old Testament. So uh, many of the Gentiles were exposed to them. Not that all of them believed them, but certainly some did. Just like we proclaim the gospel, not everybody believes the gospel. Not everybody repents. Yet many have a lot of information about the gospel but they've never made that decision for the gospel and so um, the awareness is made high when there's a lot of uh, exposure to the scriptures but when there is an exposure then it is a low view of scripture in fact uh, really non-existing sometimes and so here again they they come declaring the fact that a king had been born the king of the jews and uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Once again, he is a man who is self-centered. He has fought for this position. He has uh, um, used it for his own power, for his own uh, evil. Um, he was uh, just uh, a man that didn't put up with any um, opposition, no rivalry, and in fact, he was kind of paranoid. If uh, Herod was alive today, they would call him bipolar or schizophrenic. Because um, he didn't, he, he was just, he, he killed his sons, he killed his, um, his wives, he, he, he killed so many different people just to try to uh, um, usurp his authority. And I can imagine as he listens here, they came, as it says here, um, in verse uh, 2, that they came to worship him, and yet this went against everything that he believed he was. He believed he was the true legitimate king. He believed that he should des deserve all the worship. And so the heart of, of Herod, again, uh, building up here, he's a Nidumian. He's a, he's a half-breed, what we would call in the old days, the old school. Um, half Edumean are the descendants of Esau and half Jew. So again, he marred his genealogy and he was paranoid. Again, um, he, he just killed everybody. Um, Herod was troubled. There are some people that are so jealous you might find a woman or a man who's very jealous and for every little thing they just get freaked out and when there is no trouble they create trouble and when there's a beautiful relationship they destroy the relationship and when there really is no cause 
Um, it's, it's their own imagination, their own presuppositions, and uh, many relationships with men and women have been ruined because of that uh, envy or jealousy or uh, um, just inability to, to trust somebody when there isn't any real reason or grounds for it. And uh, it's very heartbreaking towards the other person because um, they really love that person. And um, we have all lived long enough, if uh, you've been around, to realize how many relationships are ruined that way. Um, he's agitated is what the word means. He doesn't, he can't stand rivals. In verse 4 through 6, you have the inquiry here of Herod from the religious uh, uh, men of the day. Um, and when he had gathered at the chief, uh, all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ would be born. Again, it's interesting that um, none of the religious rulers uh, were really interested in the Messiah. They weren't seeking the Messiah. They weren't, they weren't excited about looking for the Messiah's birth. And yet God gave them the scriptures. Remember that Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he says, if you would have known this, your day, the things that were prepared for you. God had given them the exact day of his first coming as he rode in Jerusalem on the donkey. Zechariah 9.9, Daniel 9.24-26, to the day. But they missed it and Jesus wept over them. God has given the exact day of the second coming. But you have to be around the tribulation to figure it out. <laughs> Jesus gave it in Matthew twenty four fifteen, just one of the passages. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Diana Prophet, flee to the wilderness, 1,260 days, look up to these, and the church will be coming back with Jesus. But you've got to be here to see the abomination when the Antichrist goes into the Holy of Holies, and he declares himself God in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And he causes every person in the world to worship him alone. To take the number of his person on the right hand or the forehead. Without it you can't buy, you can't sell. And he will just be the supreme tyrant upon the earth. Against Christians, those who accept Christ during the tribulation and great tribulation. And Israel, the remnant. So the key is the abomination of desolation. When we get to Matthew 24, we'll look at it more closely. But here again, um, these individuals, um, the uh, chief priests, the go-betweens, the, um, the scribes, the lawyers, the interpreters of the, of the word, and of course they had made volumes of it and, and, and inquired of them to where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And so they, they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is written by the prophet. Of course, they are talking about Jeremiah, not Jeremiah, Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. God once again gives them the very place of, of the birth of the Messiah. And so many things that, that are so clear in Scripture and that's why the Bible says to study, to show yourself approved, to meditate upon the word day and night so that you know the scriptures. I am amazed of how 
little attention is given today in the church to the rapture of the church. In fact, much of the church today, a good majority of it, is speaking against such thing as the rapture, which is called the blessed hope. And I don't hear much about the second coming. Everybody's kind of getting comfortable and just hunker down and have community and fellowship and let's not judge one another and let's just, you know, let's not fight over doctrine. No, let's fight over doctrine. Okay? If you don't stand for something, then you stand for nothing. The only way you can truly love one another in the love of God is to know doctrine. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. You know what's truth. You know what's error. You know what's the will of God and what's not the will of God. You do that by knowing doctrine. So it's very, very important. So it all sounds real nice. It all sounds real loving. But in fact, it is just the opposite, just like the liberal progressives. Whatever they say, the affordable act is the unaffordable act. It's just the opposite. Okay? Undocumented workers, they're illegal aliens. It's just the reverse. All-inclusive, unless you're moral, ethical, or a Christian. So it's just the opposite of what the liberal declares. It's to bring in confusion, to bring in division, to pit people, to confuse right from wrong, truth from error. And sooner or later, Whoever it may be, an individual, a family, a nation, or the world itself, ultimately through the Antichrist, will be totally destroyed. A world can't function like that. Sooner or later, it will break down. And so, here again, these are the religious rulers, but they're not looking for Jesus. And Bethlehem right there, in the land of Judah, verse 6, are not... The least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And here in verse 6, um, as he's quoting this, and again, um, you know, Bethlehem is, it has a long history. As you go back to the Old Testament and everything, you know, Rachel was buried there. Ruth lived there. David's home was there. Um, it's called the house of bread. Um, long, long, long history. And the court is really saying that even though Bethlehem was one of the least little hick towns, if you will, you know, uh, just insignificant compared to Jerusalem or Rome or anything else, yet out of it, it would be exalted because of who was going to be born, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Uh, we look at things so much different Uh, From the earthly perspective, we put importance and value on things if people are beautiful, handsome, if they have money, if they're famous, if they drive big cars or they live in mansions or whatever it be. They have private jets. Uh, You know, we kind of be in awe of them. God God puts a premium on on the brokenhearted, the humble at heart, the ones who agree with God and see themselves in agreement with God. With how God describes us 
fallen and, 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 and tainted by sin in need of a Savior. And so uh, the, the, the premium that God puts upon us is much different than, uh, than those of the world. Um, as here in verse 6, it speaks about the ruler and the shepherd of his people. Um, some commentators point out Second Samuel five two, as the um, as the quote reference, but and that's from David. And though the the words match for David, if you go down to verse four of Micah five, he describes there the shepherd feeding the sheep, exactly what he says in verse two, and that's what you would be. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. Peter calls him the chief shepherd. Um, he, he is the one who literally cares for his sheep and will ultimately be ruling and reigning in this earth in the thousand-year reign over his people, Israel, and we will be reigning with him. In verse 7 through 8, you have the evil plotting of Herod. It says, uh, Then Herod, when he had um, secretly called a wise man, determined from them what time the star appeared. So his wheels are turning. He's trying to figure out, okay, let's see if I can figure out. We have, first of all, I want to know where he's at. Where was he born and how? what's the length of time? Because as we see, he's going to give an edict to kill uh, the children. And he determines that by the information he gets from them. Um, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Well, we have hindsight and uh, as to his motive. Um, we are reading this in history. When the wise men were there, they have no idea he's covering up his motive here with, with um, his uh, fraudulent words. And if there's one thing that we all know is that when we trust somebody and we take someone at face value, and then you find out that they have purposely lied to you or, or, or compromised that truth or omitted truth or whatever it may be. It infuriates you. Because you completely just took them at their word. The old school used to say, my word is my bond and people would shake on it. There, there's no such thing today. Even people get their lawyers I mean, stop and think about our marriages today in many different ways. They have prenuptial agreements. How can you enter a marriage to a person telling them, I love you, but I don't trust you? Do you think there's a lot of hope for that marriage? What you're telling them is, you know, I think you really will rip me off, so I can't trust you. So I have to put a limit on how much I'm going to let you rip me off for. This is all part also, more so, in that marriages are delayed much longer now. When I grew up in the 60s, many of my friends were married at 17, 18. If you got married at 21, you were pretty old. Today, the average person gets married is 28, maybe even 30, 31 going. People put their careers before everything else and people are out partying and doing their thing a lot longer. And so when they come into a marriage now, 
Not only do they have a lot of baggage they have to deal with, but many of them already have a lot of bucks, <laughs> their careers. And so they're saying, this is mine. And so they have to make some kind of legal negotiations. Once again, it's very unnatural. It's great when you get married, you're young, you both are young and dumb, and you don't have anything. And then God begins to deal with you, mold you, and shape you, and bless you, and you work hard together. And when you look at something and say, man, isn't God good? Look at the house he's given us. Look at the kids he's given us. Look at what he's given us. It's us. It's not me. It's not yours. You might have a member in your family that says, these are my fig newtons. Nobody touch them. No, if they're in the refrigerator, it's the family's fig newtons. There's nobody that, that, that has a special corner on things. But see, that's the selfishness that comes in our flesh. And so, um, Herod, powerful man, evil man. And so, he sends them out fraudulently that they might come back. And when they find him, that he may come and worship also, proskuneo, to bow the face, to go to the ground, to kiss the hand, obeisance, reverence, obedience to one of superior. But of course he's lying. You know, men lie to women and women lie to men. Once again, we are in a period of our history where people's word is not what it was once. Even though we were still fallen, there was an order in society. There was ethics. There was morals. There was integrity. So society ran a lot smoother. Now, it is so gunked up. The courts are so backed up in cases. They will never get through them. You probably die before you get your case heard in court today. Because of the corruption that's allowed. Once you remove consequences from society, you've just destroyed all authority of the law. Law has reward and consequences. If you decriminalize the law, you destroy all authority. And though you may say, well, there's not that many crimes this last year. Well, it's not because there aren't more criminal acts. Is that you've now minimized the consequence. What used to be a crime now isn't a crime. We've all seen the bumper stickers. My child is an honor roll. A used to be up here. A is down here where the C is now. If that. So it's self-deception. You're doctoring up the books. That's what goes on in societies when they start imploding and decaying. Now, Herod is the master of this. He's a liar. Verse 9 says, When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which had been seen in the east 
went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, once again, this is not Saturn. This is not um, Halley's Comet. This is not a supernova, as I said. This is a divine star or light that God is using to guide them. No natural star just leaves and then disappears and appears again and stops, okay? Here, right here, in, in verse 9, it literally, it stops right over the house. Now, it had to be low enough to identify the house, okay? So this, again, is God directing who? Pagans. that used to be pagans. But by their own confession, they're believers, they're seeking the Messiah, knowing that he has been born. And in verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. This is the response. Long journey, 1,200, 1,500 miles, maybe 30 to 40 days, somewhere there. They've gone to Jerusalem thinking that's where because it's the capital, but it wasn't there. This insignificant town but they weren't seeking a famous city they were seeking the king of the jews god incarnate there's the big difference and so the men saw the child jesus here they rejoiced exceedingly and when they had come into the house notice it's not a stable or an outside core with four walls, as Luke tells us, was the, the birth of Christ. They saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasuries, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So here's where we get the two-year difference. And we know the two-year difference because when Herod, as we move on, will give the command for two years downward. Uh, it could have been a year. Maybe he went one year over to make sure he didn't miss any kid. We're not sure, but it, time has elapsed. It is a house um, where they're at. And um, they worship the Lord. And notice that they first see Jesus. The child is mentioned first, not Mary. They didn't worship Mary. They worshiped Jesus. And when he mentions Mary and Jesus again, he mentions Jesus first again. He's the focus. He's the king of the Jews. He's the savior of the world. Mary is not a savior. If you read the Magnificent of Mary and Luke, she says, My Lord and my Savior, acknowledging her own sinfulness and need of forgiveness of sins. And we've already talked about other children that she had. We'll get it in chapter 13 of Matthew. Mark records it also. Brothers and sisters, their names are given to us. And so here, um, they worshiped him, and they opened up their treasuries, their coffers. Uh, you get the word thesaurus from this word, treasure. And they presented gifts, uh, gold, frankincense, um, and myrrh here in verse 11. Um, the gold representing his uh, deity and the fact that he's king. The frankincense represents his uh, uh, priestly sacrificial service he would do, the high priest of heaven. And the myrrh uh, represents the prophet that would die. And it's also used for embalming. And Nicodemus, remember, brought that um, when he asked for the body of Jesus in John nineteen thirty nine, 
um, the wise men were warned then in verse 12 by God. God has been leading them. God has been directing them. God is faithful. And he says them being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod. They departed for their own country another way. He knew if they went back, because they had taken Herod at his word, that they would have been killed. They went back a different route because God knew that Herod would chase them, send an army after them the same route they came. So once again, I just wonder how many times God has protected you and you're totally oblivious or myself Things that God has protected me by redirecting, reguiding, or whatever. You know, you're driving down there and say, well, I think I'll just, I think I'll take this shortcut and, you know, and maybe there's an accident up ahead or whatever it may be. Or even spiritually speaking, as you are a witness for Jesus Christ and you minister the gospel and sometimes some people are in very hostile environments, sometimes the universities, there's, there's, no, there's no more hostile place than the American universities today. They are literally equivalent to um, Mao's re-educational camps in China and the Cultural Revolution. When Mao did it, he took all the Christians and put them away, and he took all the teachers and the books, and he sent them to re-educational camps. The liberals have done it the reverse way. Beginning 1900, they went into the universities to remove every vestige of Christianity and they've accomplished it in 110, 15 years. And every year they march out their army of anti-biblical, anti-Christ individuals. Pretty smart, don't you think? They're very persistent, very consistent. They accomplished it in 110, 115 years. No different than Mao. And so here again, God's protection and his faithfulness. When you come to verse 13 to 23, you have the safe flight of Jesus to Egypt and his safe return to Israel given to us. In verse 13 through 15, the flight to Egypt by Joseph, Mary, and Jesus is given. Verse 13 says, uh, Now when they had... Departed, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Now remember, the um, wise men didn't know about it, but God warned them. Um, and now Joseph is oblivious to it. They have departed, but now God deals with him. Um, God is so faithful to those. And as I said, I, I think of some of the travel, some of the places we have gone in the world sometimes through the years. We've gone to war uh, areas where there's um, been war and we go minister the gospel. We, we went to the Philippines in, in the um, 80s when there was a uh, killing pastor. We went to the, uh, um, the um, island of Mindanao. And uh, we landed in C-39 transport, uh, military planes. We had to sign so that they were not responsible for us. And uh, other areas of the world, different things. And, and yet God's protection. And sometimes people would say, why do you want to go? Well, God, God, open the doors. I'm going to go. 
I mean, I can die here in, in a car accident or I can die somewhere else. If God tells me not to go, I don't want to go. But if God opens the door and he doesn't close the door and doesn't warn me, then, then I go. That's the way I've lived my life and God takes care of it. Here again, he warns um, Joseph. The angel appears to him in a dream. Once again, you have the, the manner and the mode by which God warns. It's just we see in chapter 1, chapter 2. Dreams. We've seen visions with the minor prophets and also the major prophets. Egypt was probably about 200 miles away. It had a large community of Jews. As you know, the, uh, the Septuagint was translated in Alexandria of Egypt, where a lot of the Gnostics were. In fact, Gnosticism uh, surged and developed uh, to a great movement in the, um, after the first century, and it comes out of Alexandria, Egypt. Um, remember God warned Abimelech in a dream if you touch this woman you're a dead man he came to Jacob and warned him in a dream he came to Pharaoh and warned him in a dream he came to Solomon and spoke to him in a dream he came to Daniel and revealed to him the interpretation of the vision that uh, and the dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had and he came to Pilate's wife and warned her in a dream. So God can speak to people in many different ways, vision, dreams. Um, there's no problem. Now the angel told Joseph that he was to remain in Egypt until he would bring him a word to return again. This is very important when God directs us and you're seeking the Lord for something. You're asking him for wisdom, for a job, for whatever it may be. You fill in the blank that you obey God and you follow exactly what God says. Sometimes we, we ask God for something, the doors open, and, and he may open the door at first, but once we walk in it, he's going to give us the specifics. He doesn't give us everything at one time. But if we just take the open door and we no longer check on him and then we just run with it, we can get ourselves in trouble, right? So God wants me to depend on him from day to day. Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, is this what you want? Lord, is, is this of you? Is this opposition of you or not? So he wants you personally to go to him so that you are responsible with the decisions you make that you can say, God led me. God directed me. I know this is God's will. That's very, very important. And when God doesn't speak to me, then I judge his will according by his word. One of the two. So this way I know I'm in safe ground. Now, the reason for the flight was that Herod was going to kill Jesus. He reveals this to Joseph, which I'm sure just freaked him out as the head of the home. And Joseph obeyed in verse 14. God consistently... Um, um, dealt with Joseph at this point from the beginning and he consistently obeyed God and he went to Egypt here and he remained there in verse 15 till the death of Herod um, in fulfillment of the prophecy um, it says uh, in verse 15, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I call 
my son. Now, in verse 15 here, um, the prophecy is twofold. The short-term fulfillment is God's redemptive love for Israel, um, who had committed spiritual adultery as the wife. Uh, Gomer represented Israel, if you remember, when we went through um, the book of Hosea. And again, the quote here is Hosea 11.1. 1. Um, the long-term fulfillment is the calling of Jesus, God's son, out of Egypt. You can look at the parallel also in the Old Testament as God put the nation of Israel through Joseph being second in command to raise up a nation and then coming under persecution and affliction and being slaves. God sends Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. There's a parallel there, okay? And the same here. Now his son comes out of Egypt. Everything according to God's time. The prophecies are exact. We've had Micah 5.2, the location of Bethlehem. Right here, Hosea 11.1, for his flight to Egypt and coming out of Egypt. Everything according to prophecy. God declared it before it happens. So when it happens, you know it's God because only God knows the future. If you just take a handful of prophecies and you identify the number of factors in each prophecy, an average, say, of eight, and just eight of them being fulfilled, it would be like the state of Texas being filled with silver dollars three to four feet deep. I forget exactly. Marking one of them with an X. Getting a giant blender and stirring them up. And then getting a blind man to go out there and just happen to pick the one. That's just eight of them. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming. This book, ladies and gentlemen, is the Bible, God's revealed word. There is no book equivalent to this. This is not just a book. This is God's word. Inspired, inerrant, infallible. That warns you and myself against the judgment of God. But it also offers us the greatest gift, his son, to be forgiven as he paid the price for us upon the cross. It's the greatest news that's ever been given to mankind. In verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the district from two years old and under according to that time which he had determined from the wise men. So here again in 16, Herod's great anger and response, furious. He, he was attempting to deceive the wise men and he got played. Not by the wise men, but by God. <laughs> you see? They were totally oblivious to it. Again, God's protection. I, I, I sometimes... I, I, I wasn't raised in church. I, I was in the world until 23 years of age. And I think of some of the things that went on in the world and things where we were involved. 
and, and how you think you're so clever and you think that you can get away with things and you don't realize how foolish you are because God sees everything and God knows everything and sooner or later you make a right turn when you should have made a left. <laughs> you, you, you stop when you should go or you go when you should stop and everything comes home to you one way or the other. Here Herod was so incensed as he has been just deceived <laughs> according to him. But here again is perspective, right? He was deceiving. Usually, usually what you're blaming other people of, you're doing it. You know? He was a liar, a deceiver, and a murderer. And, and so, of course, he, he would think that of everybody. They're trying to overthrow him in the throne, right? And, and that's what happens if we don't have a standard, if we don't walk with Jesus Christ. Um, time, with time, people don't get better, Okay? You would, they tell us we do, but society doesn't bear that out at all. Josephus tells us Herod's plan to be mourned at death by incarcerating the principal men in the hippodrome that they might be killed the very instant that the news came to them. This way there would be someone mourning at the time of his death, even though they were mourning for the people he had killed. Wow. Of course, they didn't kill him when they got the orders and the news that he was dead. They released him, of course. But this is a demented person. Do you think Hitler was that bad as a three-year-old, four-year-old? No. It was very progressive. Mussolini. Mao, Idi Amin, Castro, Che. These are all the guys that all the university students put them on their t-shirts. Listen, if those guys were around, you, your head would be on a platter in the university. Because they don't study history. You see? They exalt criminals and people who rule over people and they look down on the privilege of freedom and a free society. Wow. Tweak perspective. Absolutely. Just like a lot of people think that, you know, Christianity is just, you know, just men trying to rule over women and how dare they. And, you know, they just think that, you know, they're just a bunch of sex objects and they should be washing, staying home, being pregnant. And don't run the world. That's not what the Bible teaches. You, I, when you tell me that, I know that you've never read the Bible. You don't understand Christianity. So there's a lot of misunderstanding and twisted perceptions which demonstrates the high ignorance of our society. When it comes to the things of God. Verse 17 and 18 says, This was fulfilled, then was fulfilled, that was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, 
refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Here in verse 18, the slaughter of the infants, the prophet is named Jeremiah in verse 17, Jeremiah 31, 15. The prophecy once again has a twofold fulfillment. The short term being the downfall of the nation of Israel going into captivity of Babylon. Marking Rachel's lamentation in verse 18. The captives of Israel were gathered at Ramah, if you remember. Five miles north of Jerusalem that would go by way of Rachel's tomb. As the captives were being led to captivity. And here the prophecy says she would mourn as now they were being taken to captivity because they didn't pay heed to God's word. Isaiah says you're going to go in captivity. Jeremiah says you're going to go in captivity. Ezekiel says you're here in captivity for 70 years. They didn't believe in the false prophets. Nah, 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 we're coming back and all that. Rachel wept. There's the first short-term fulfillment. The long-term fulfillment is the murder of the infants now. And Matthew points this out. Rachel was buried by way to Euphrata, that is Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem. Genesis thirty-five nineteen gives us that location. So you have five miles north to Ramah, five miles south from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. The distance of ten miles marks the horrific lamentation and the horrific crime that it might be heard 10 miles away, the weeping. There's a second fulfillment. Amazing. This is the third prophecy in chapter 2. 19 to 23, you have the return of Jesus now. Um, to Nazareth, verse 19 and 21, you have the release from God for Joseph to return to Israel. It says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So here again we have the mode of a dream. Um, Herod died in um, 4 BC in the spring, so we can be certain when this date was. And um, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. And so notice God continues to instruct and guide. God speaks to you, and he directs and guides you in the things that you're seeking him, about your studies, about your career, about your marriage, about the person you're dating, about your finance, whatever it is. And, and, and he directs and guides, and you're on your way and all that. And then two years later, then you're seeking God for something else, or he directs you, he guides you, he speaks to you specifically about something. Very important. As you walk with him, you're fellowshipping with him, you're growing, you're, you're maturing, you're tuning your ear to the voice of God. Very, very important. And so the angel uh, instructs Joseph to 
to awake. But notice that he says before we go to that verse, he says those who sought the young child's life are dead. Not only Herod, but the people he had put in charge of pursuing the child. So once again, God protects. Um, Remember, God told Moses. Moses was a little hesitant to go back to Egypt. And God says, all those that you knew are dead. And then he goes back and he made excuses, but finally he ended up going back to Egypt. And so, verse 21 says, Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the reign or the region of Galilee. And so, verse 21, notice that God here is the one who initiates to him. As he arose, they went in obedience. Then when he gets to that place, then, as I said, then God deals with him again to redirect, re-guide. So it's important that we stay in fellowship, checking with the Lord and asking him. He took the young child. Here again, the order is the child first, then the mother. They came to the land of Israel. And it's apparent by verse 22 that he returned back to the area of Judea, okay? Um, maybe very possibly Bethlehem again, we're not told, but Judea is all in that region. And, um, and here, um, as he sees Archelaus being um, the one who was reigning, um, Fear grips his heart because Archelaus was one of Herod's sons and he ruled Judea and Samaria um, like his father with great brutality. Uh, the Herods are, are incredible um, evil people. You've got to keep your tabs on them. There's so many Herods. Um, Archelaus here killed 3,000 of his um, in his ascension to the throne in 6 A.D., um, you have Herod Antipas who beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, you had Philip also. You had Herod Agrippa I, the grandson of Herod the Great, and Marianne who killed uh, James with the sword in um, Acts 12. Herod Agrippa II was the son of Herod Agrippa I and uh, Cyprion who Paul addressed in his imprisonment at Caesarea on the Mediterranean in Acts 25-26. So you've got a long line of Herods. And they're all rotten to the core. Um, verse, um, so he is warned by God here in a dream once again. And he turns aside to the region of Galilee, up north. Okay, you've got Galilee, you've got Samaria, you've got Judea. Okay, the three sections. And verse 23 says, And he came and he dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. He shall be called a Nazarene. Ultimately, the residence of Jesus here, Joseph and Mary, Nazareth, 80 miles north of Jerusalem. The term is in contrast to Judea, Nazareth. The term is also 
appears in a disdain or derogatory indication in John 146, 752, and 2771. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He is called a Nazarene. Kind of like a hick town. Okay, remember the Galilee. Jerusalem's the holy place. They look down on the Galileans. There's a lot of Gentiles up there, okay? You pick this up through the gospel. Um, remember the whole of Galilee looked down again. Isaiah 53 to 50, 52 to 53 speaks of Jesus, how he is despised and rejected. Okay? Completely. And so there is no specific prophet given here and uh, believed to be a summation of many as the prophets are in the plural here. And, um, and there's no one that we can find that it says that. It's believed that it's a play on words. The root word is nesser, which means branch or shoot, probably referring to Jesse, the line or the stem of Jesse in Isaiah 11.1 1, and Jeremiah 33.15. He says prophets, plural, not any specific prophet. Some try to make a connection with the Nazarite vow, but Jesus was not a Nazarite. In fact, he said, John the Baptist is a Nazarite, and you, you make fun of him. And then, I'm not a Nazarite, you call me a glutton. Okay, so Jesus was not a Nazarite. This is the fourth prophecy fulfilled just in chapter 2. We're going to have so many prophecies fulfilled because Matthew is speaking to the Jew and to the Jew were given the oracles of God and Matthew is proving that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah promise, the very Lamb of God according to the scriptures of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi all the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, and your goodness. We love you. We thank you for your word, for your uh, love for us, Lord. And we pray that you continue to teach us and instruct us. And Lord, we pray for those that are uh, looking to you and studying your word, that you would guide and direct them, even as we've studied tonight. Help us, Lord, in our decisions, in our marriages, in raising our children, in our jobs, and decisions we make, Lord that you would be honored in all things. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to repent of your sins. You alone can make that decision, and that will determine where you spend eternity. If you're here or over the Internet, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here. If you want to repent of your sins, it's a simple prayer of you calling out to God to forgive you of your sins. So if this is your desire, this is a simple prayer of repentance that you can say to the Lord, not to us, but to the Lord. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.